Welcome to Opto Sessions, where we interview the brightest minds from the stock market, uncovering their secrets to success. If you're looking for ideas, tips and techniques from the world's best, you're in the right place. Today, I'm welcoming Catherine McDonald to the Opto Sessions podcast, co-founder of Radiant ESG. Earlier this year, Catherine and Radiant CEO Heidi Ridley left renowned Quant House and Rosenberg Equities, the original Quant if you read Rosenberg's website. The duo had decided to take the ESG integration synonymous with their former employer one step further. I speak to Catherine about why, with global inflows into sustainable funds up 72% in Q2 2020, ESG is booming right now. We then discuss how Catherine and co have captured this global zeitgeist in Radiant's product offering with two new strategies primed for imminent market release. Catherine's commitment to what we now call environmental, social and governance investing began over 30 years ago, and I learned a lot about sector that added $71 billion in the second quarter of this year. Catherine identifies the themes she thinks will lend further intrigue to an industry on the lips of market commentators, and I hope you find the interview as valuable as I did. Enjoy. Hello and welcome, Catherine. Great to have you on the podcast. Has it been a busy week so far? It certainly has. We're in the in the run up to the U.S. election in November, and things have really started to become uh, pretty hot and heavy in the press with the two uh, presidential candidates. So every every day feels like it's a brand new experience on the political front, but it's also a little bit uh, anxiety raising for uh, for some of us who have strong opinions about the election. Oh yeah, I, I can imagine. Well. Uh... Let's hope it goes the right way. So if I can just start by asking you some questions uh, about ESG more generally before we dig into your background. Um, first off, do you think we can marry the creation of long-term investment value and outperformance with positive social impact? Yeah, I, I certainly do. Um, you know, I think this idea of long-term investment value, you know, to a great extent, this hinges on companies being on the right side of what we see as these big supply and demand pressures, you know, these big forces that will move us as companies, as individuals, as society. So how company deals with um, resource scarcity, with regulations, with um, what we call this idea of social license to operate, all of this is going to figure directly into the future earnings of that company, their cost of capital, their valuations you know, these are the drivers of risk and return. And what we refer to as ESG and even impact, you know, will really figure prominently into our assessment of a company and that company's competitiveness. So, you know, we do see that these themes are intrinsically linked and all else equal, we believe that companies that navigate these themes better than their peers will uh, have an advantage over time. Yeah, so I guess in line with that, ESG cynics and the power of their arguments seem to be quickly losing momentum. Do you think we're at a tipping point for ESG, in your opinion? I think that for investors and for larger asset owners, um, you know, we've been at or past that tipping point for some time. Mm. And, you know, what we observe is that in almost every market outside the US and, you know, possibly some countries in Asia, ESG is really the price of admission. You know, most big investors now require that asset managers or that anybody who's touching their money um, be cognizant of and consider uh, ESG factors in, in what they're doing. I think that what has happened 
in the last couple of months with the COVID pandemic, with Black Lives Matter, with the, the severity of fires that we're experiencing now in the Western part of the US. This makes much of what we study in ESG, which is really the, this intersection of environmental, social, and governance themes, this makes it um, real uh, to most people. And so, you know, this, is, this has been an access point or a tipping point for many individuals who are not professional investors, not, you know, large asset owners. This has been uh, a kind of a swift lesson about the relationship between our natural environment, social um, upheaval, and how it has affected the real economy. Uh, I'll say that COVID seems like it's really just a, a dress rehearsal for what we face with respect to climate challenges more generally. So the fact that we are stumbling all over ourselves to really uh, effectively marshal our resources on COVID is, is pretty depressing in light of what many of us believe we will face in the coming years on the subject of climate. Yeah, that's interesting. And, and that point about being past or well past that tipping point i mean you'd certainly be substantiated by uh, the inflows particularly into sustainable funds i mean we're up 72 percent uh, in terms of global inflows for sustainable funds in the second quarter of 2020 uh, so they're totaling 71.1 billion dollars so there's there's real real momentum in this space at at this present time would you see now as a particular sort of boom phase are we seeing a real peak in momentum at this point in time? I think that's undeniable. And certainly when we look at the fund space, you know, th this is something you know, we've, we've observed really record inflows into separate accounts for the last couple of years. But, you know, when it comes to funds, um, it's been more recently that we've seen these, these massive inflows. So it is undeniable that this is a, uh, a theme and a boom, if you will, um, in fund investment or even, even retail investment. Yeah, that's really interesting. And uh, I want to return to a couple of those points uh, shortly. But uh, as I mentioned at the top of the episode, uh, I'm keen now to dig into your background and kind of understand how you've got to where you are today. So my first question on that, I mean, you spent over 20 years at AXA Rosenberg Investment Management. You must have seen some change there. I mean, you started as a senior product strategist, I believe, in 99, uh, going on to become director of investment strategy in 2014. Um, just for someone uh, that's external to uh, a massive sort of corporation like that and hasn't worked for one, uh, as, as uh, will be the case for many of our listeners, are there any big changes that really stand out to you over your time there? Yeah, certainly the company itself went through a lot of changes over that period of time. You know, I, I was one of the people in, when I joined in 1999, there were, you know, already, I'm going to say close to a hundred people working there. So I certainly wasn't there at the very beginning of the firm, but the firm still, still smelt, felt like a, a much smaller uh, company when I joined. And then it proceeded to grow pretty dramatically after that, both in terms of number of people and in terms of assets under management. But, you know, when I think back about, you know, to my time at Rosenberg, the things, frankly, that really stand out are periods of intense stress in the equity market. So, you know, when I joined Rosenberg, it was the height of the, of the dot-com bubble in the late 1990s. And at the time I was working on our long short strategies in which we were actually, you know, actively shorting companies with no earnings. And I, I can remember having conversations with people outside of the firm 
you know, saying things like earnings don't matter. It's all about clicks per minute or something like that, you know, and, and the lesson that, you know, ultimately I and others took away from, from that is that, yeah, actually earnings do matter. Um, we can go through periods of time in which there seems to be a pretty significant disconnect. Um, but ultimately, uh, earnings and prices are, uh, are related and necessarily so. The next period of stress uh, was the GFC, which happened a decade later. Mm. And I think the lesson um, that we as an industry um, learned uh, is that we needed to be as concerned with total return as we were with relative return. You know, as the, as the market was drawing down 40%, I can't say that many of our clients um, were, were consoled by the fact that our funds were only down 38%. Um, so at the, at the end of the GFC period, I think the lesson was really that, you know, sharp ratio ultimately trumps information ratio when it comes to usefulness of investment ideas. Um, both of these things have really uh, stuck with me and shaped the way that I invest. And I would say that, you know, that Rosenberg as a firm um, really had to, you know, carefully navigate um, these two big stressors within the context of a stock market that was, you know, for most of the time um, between 1999 and, and when I left recently at the beginning of 2020, most of the time was a booming market economy, but it was really um, peaked by these uh, periods of in, <laughs> intense downturn, COVID um, obviously being um, the most recent. Yeah, and that that point about the tech bubble interests me. Just because I I wonder how your experiences there have sort of coloured the way that you view the market at the moment. I mean, we're seeing sort of historically high tech valuations uh, in U.S. equity markets at the moment, and I wonder whether you see any similarities between the environment back then and the environment now. I think that you know a a big difference is really. Uh, the environment back then was, you know, what could only be described as vaporware. I mean, there, there were things that were selling at 200, 300 times earnings, if there were any earnings to be had, that were really just kind of a wing and a prayer and people being, you know, mesmerized by the prospect of the, of the internet uh, ruling our lives. Now, what we see um, with some of the tech giants, if we just take, um, you know, take Amazon or, or Microsoft or Google, for example, these are companies that have actually been the economic winners um, through the most recent downturn. So while we certainly would point to uh, lofty valuations on some of those names as a, you know, potentially a good reason not to invest in them right now, I really don't think that it would be a fair comparison to say, um, that they were anything like some of the names that were booming uh, during the TMT bubble. Yeah, okay. Well, that's good. That's comforting to hear, I suppose. <laughs> I do without what you will. Yeah. Um, okay, well, returning to your career then, having spent uh, 21 years at Rosenberg, as I say, you decide to uh, leave and set up Radiant ESG, the company that you have co-founded with Heidi Ridley, who uh, earlier this year, as you said, uh, and just as an aside, we actually uh, interviewed Heidi Ridley for issue nine of Opto magazine. The feature for that interview will actually be live on the Opto website at the end of this month. So that's one for our listeners to look out for. But if I return to the question, I guess what I'm trying to get to is, you know, why found this business and why found this business now? Yeah, I think that, uh, you know, when I hear you ask that question, the real question that I'm hearing is, why in the world 
uh, do we need another asset management firm? There are, there are plenty out there. Why would we uh, do this at this time? And I think put simply, we really don't see examples of the kind of firm that we want to build out there in the world. So we believe that it's the time is right um, for us to do it. We have a vision um, that is to essentially create the asset management firm of the future by embracing ESG considerations as necessary in building sustainable investment portfolios. Um, at the same time, we are dedicated to this idea of carving a path um, for women and minorities in the, in the industry for generations to come. Our ability to do that, though, is predicated on our ability to deliver superior returns. And you know, we seek to do this by investing in companies that make the world a better place for, you know, for lack of a, of a better way of putting it. Um, we're, again, deeply committed to ESG anchored portfolios. Um, we believe in investment as well as divestment when necessary, although we're not a, a heavily divestment focused company. And certainly this idea of engagement. And this is all as you know, public equity owners, engagement and voting really are our levers for uh, impact um, within, the, within the world that we work in. I think very importantly, and back to you know, what, we, what we don't see much of um, in the world is we need to be able to do all of this at scale. And the way that we build portfolios is to you know, build portfolios that are reasonably high capacity, but that absolutely pass the sniff test for ESG and for impact aligned integration. Yeah, interesting. And I, I guess that's probably a good juncture then to uh, get some deeper detail on Radiant's uh, investment philosophy and what the company does uh, for its clients now and what it intends to do for future clients. So first off, I, I believe you're in the process of finding a partner for an asset management arm of your business. So first, you can you can maybe catch me up. Maybe I'm a little bit behind on that uh, and you can catch our listeners up on that as well. And, and secondly, when, when do you expect to, to launch? Sure. So to be absolutely clear, we are looking for a partner. We are looking to partner with, you know, probably a slightly larger investment management company that's going to allow us to plug into their legal, their compliance, their cybersecurity, even, you know, their distribution, if appropriate. These conversations are in the works. And this is something that, you know, we feel like the best thing we can do is bring an investment team to leverage somebody else's resources that we know plenty of companies have worked long and hard to build this kind of solid infrastructure. So those are the conversations that we're having right now. I'm happy to say that there are a couple of firms that have, you know, you know, seem, seem interested. We're starting to get into kind of the details of how that might work mm. right now, but the conversations have been very positive. We are ready to start this as soon as we uh, can find an appropriate partner. So we're, we're kind of raring to go on that front. In parallel, we are doing consulting. And so Radiant ESG, if you look at our website, for example, is a consulting website. And that's something that, that we believe that we can offer effectively now and that it won't interfere with this um, you know seeking of the right partner for asset management yeah interesting and I, I guess when you do enter into this partnership you're going to be looking to sort of instill your uh, investment philosophy and your process 
uh, kind of within that structure, whatever that relationship actually ends up looking like. Um, so having done a bit of research before the call, I know at Rosenberg, there was a very uh, strong focus on quantitative investment, a quantitative investment process, but whilst integrating that with ESG, how do you think your investment process is going to look? Is it going to look something similar to that or is it going to be wildly different? So we, we are certainly big believers of the discipline that quant brings. And so the short answer is that, yes, we will be doing quantitative investing. But having done this now for 20 plus years, we are keenly aware of some of the blind spots of, uh, of quant related investing, not the least of which is this sort of backwards looking way of doing research and way of, you know, quote, uh, proving uh, things work by doing, um, you know, kind of back testing your way into security as we think about it. So we want to marry what we believe to be the best of quant with what we know is possible if we are to color outside the, the lines just a little bit. And so our, our ethos is really that we are investors first and quant second. Quant can really help us get to the point of being better investors, but we absolutely should not be uh, slaves to quantitative method. Yeah. And then I guess if you had to narrow it down, is there a key sort of differentiator or USP for your investment process relative to uh, some of the peers in this space? I think that we have a couple of things going for us that I that I would say are um, are definitely qualities that we bring to the table that we don't see uh, many others as having. The first is this idea of having both very deep um, subject matter knowledge on ESG and deep practical investing experience. You know, we see that in many organizations, the ESG people are sitting on one side of the room, the the portfolio management team is on the other that there's you know definitely pressure from the top now at most organizations to kind of uh, bring these two forces together but what we observe is that not all good esg stocks are good investments and certainly not all investment you know good investments viewed through a more traditional lens are good esg names so i think that the that the key thing that we bring is really this idea of looking for this intersection, really trying our best to understand and model how ESG characteristics influence what we know to be the drivers of risk and return for stocks. The second thing that we bring to the table, and really this is a function of having grown up in a, in a quantitative investment shop, is a deep understanding and appreciation for the ESG data. It is messy. It is non-standard. It is difficult to work with, but we, you know, we wade into it with uh, an open mind and um, we, I think, do a very responsible job of extracting information from these data sets that are notoriously difficult to work with. Yeah, okay. So to get a kind of better understanding of what this will look like in reality, then I understand at first at least there'll be two strategies. 
Um, the flagship is sustainable future, I believe. Firstly, I understand that that strategy will primarily be aimed at higher volume clients, so institutional or intermediary, for example. Is that right? Yeah. So, so that strategy is indeed, it, it is a broad market, global strategy. It's high capacity. And so we do anticipate that it will be very attractive for institutional investors, you know, but it certainly should also serve any investor looking for, uh, you know, broad market equity exposure with fully integrated ESG. But you're absolutely right about that one. Yeah, interesting, because we'll have a few uh, or quite a few retail investors listening in. So uh, just trying to get a sense of how uh, relevant some of these strategies might be to them. I do want to discuss the uh, the second key strategy, which I believe is called Sustainable World. And I believe that's going to be more targeted, more thematic, uh, if we can sort of describe it like that. So what investment principles will govern your uh, security selection here? Yeah, so, so whereas the, the sustainable future strategy starts out with the broad market universe like the MSCI world or the MSCI Acqui, and then it screens out a number of features that we think are unattractive and then focuses the remaining cap on what we call comprehensive quality or this notion of long horizon value creation, the sustainable world strategy actually starts with a much smaller universe. So this is a universe of companies that are legitimately um, green, I'm using air quotes here, uh, green in nature, in meaning that they have either um, sizable UNSDG aligned revenue or and or that they are best in class when it comes to green operations. And so it's very important to understand, and I do think that this is part of what differentiates this strategy from some of the ETFs out there, is this point that I mentioned just a moment ago, this idea that not all green companies are good investments. So we absolutely have to look for this intersection between ESG ideas and traditional risk and return ideas. We can't just take a basket of legitimately green stocks and ignore concepts like valuation or earnings growth. So I think that really what we bring to the table and what this makes for a good experience, especially for a retail audience, is that we have this necessary balancing act going on. How can retail investors participate in this theme, which we believe to be a very legitimate investment theme, but not dedicate capital to some of the companies that are mixed into that theme that are either you know, kind of not ready for prime time or have attributes that we know to be value destroying. Yeah, interesting. Okay, well, I, th- I think that gives a really good uh, sense of what that strategy will look like, uh, particularly and kind of how it will benefit the retail investors that uh, will be listening in. Um, I want to take a step back because uh, I think it would be unfair to completely sort of overlook the, the work that you're doing at the moment at, at Radiant, because as you say, it's, it's largely sort of advisory and consultative. Can you just tell us more about uh, the, the day-to-day work you're doing for your current clients? Sure. So as I mentioned before, we're currently offering consulting services. And so both um, Heidi Ridley, who again is the co-founder of Radiant ESG and I, were approached almost immediately after our stints at Rosenberg ended with requests um, for help on a variety of ESG themes. You know, some of these requests came from, 
you know, simply personal contacts. Other, you know, others were, you know, through a, through a more formal network. But, you know, we view consulting as being very much in step with our commitment to acting as advocates when it comes to both ESG and diversity within our industry. And so we've been talking to all kinds of potential clients, other asset management companies, foundations and endowments, religious or or values-based investors. And each of these segments has, you know, slightly different needs to be sure, but, you know, to date, the interest that we've received when it comes to these formal consulting services has really been along a couple of key themes. The first, ESG integration into an investment process. Many managers are really grappling with, we think that there's a there there, we know we need to do this, we know we need to at least talk about doing it, but how do we get from here to there, especially if there's any kind of friction between um, what management wants to see happen and what the portfolio managers are, you know, sort of thinking and believing in their daily lives. Um, so ESG integration is a big subject. Strategies for improving diversity and inclusion. We're, as you might imagine, particularly passionate about that. Um, we have had the benefit of working um, in a very, very diverse company, not just along gender dimensions, but, you know, race, ethnicity, um, native language, background, you know, um, background of studies. So all of this, I think, has helped us understand how to both build and manage um, diverse teams. And then finally, we've gotten a couple of requests that are, that are, I would say, the most fun to work on, these thematic ESG topics. You know, can you come in and talk to us about divestment? Can you come and talk to us about low carbon indices? You know, things like that, these very thematic, we were just having a conversation the other day with somebody about, you know, what are the economic impacts of the Black Lives Matter movement? You know, and I think that we can be, um, you know, very effective at not just presenting information, but, you know, really encouraging um, dialogue uh, amongst smaller groups of people on subjects like that. Yeah, interesting. So uh, are people uh, truly sort of tuned into what's going on at the moment and making a an authentic and a significant attempt at building in uh, the, those considerations into their current investment process? Do you get a sense that that's something uh, the asset management uh, industry are really trying to do at the moment? Yes, I think there are two things that are going on, but from a bottom-up perspective and in the conversations we have been having, the interest is extremely earnest. That doesn't mean that other asset managers have bought into the ESG story um, to the same level, perhaps, that Heidi and I have, but it does mean that they recognize ESG as a way to describe risk, a way to describe um, potentially opportunity. So in the Again, in the conversations that we're having, this is an honest and authentic motivation. The thing that that we see in parallel that we can't dismiss is simply the number of green, again in air quotes, funds that are coming to market. So we all should be skeptical of 
how things are labeled of, you know, marketing spin, things like that, you know, so, so I think that both things can be true, but as the industry as a whole, you know, as we kind of advance our collective knowledge of this space, these things are really going to shake out uh, in ways that are important going forward. We hope you're enjoying the episode. For interviews like this every Thursday, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, make sure you give us a star rating and leave guest suggestions along with any other feedback in the review section. Now, back to the show. How prevalent do you think greenwashing is in the asset management and investment management industries at the moment? When I think about greenwashing, I'm kind of thinking it in, uh, of it in two different ways. There's greenwashing on the part of companies who now know without, there's no question that companies know that they're being evaluated through this ESG lens. You know, that's one potential area for greenwashing. Another, as we were just talking about, is kind of at the, at the fund level. So let me, let me address the fund stuff first. Um, again, there's been these, this, you know, swath of newly registered um, ESG labeled funds out there. Um, most regulators around the world are now either investigating or putting measures into place um, such that it makes this a little bit more difficult. You know, we have a whole variety of, uh, you know, sort of country specific um, or EC specific ESG labels in Europe. In Australia, we have, you know, some very critical and demanding oversight of funds and even the SEC in the US uh, has voiced an interest in, you know, sort of looking into uh, this idea of greenwashing in the fund space. So I think that, again, for all of the companies that have put out an ESG strategy recently, um, they are really going to be on the hook to prove that it is um, legitimate and not just marketing spin. When it comes to individual companies, though, I think it's actually getting harder to get away with greenwashing because we have more um, eyes and frankly more informed eyes watching these companies and you know as investors you know perhaps uh, 15 years ago um, we would have really cared a lot about the information that was contained in uh, company CSR reports you know now I think you know most of us have moved on to a place where we view a lot of the stuff in the CSR report or the company reported stuff is being, you know, mostly fluff. And we recognize that, that these big glossy CSR reports, the websites, the, you know, commercials that we see on TV with a bunch of green imagery, um, you know, these are, these are produced by, uh, by marketing experts and not by um, the CFOs of the company. So the information that we collectively as an industry have really started looking for is more likely to be found in company presentations to investors or, you know, quarterly earnings calls or AGM proceedings. And we really are looking for not just ambition statements, um, you know, sort of future truth aspirations. What we're really looking for is hard targets and accountability when it comes to ESG. We at Radiant also use multiple data sources. So we're certainly not depending on the company, the companies themselves to tell us about their own ESG profiles, although again, when the when it's a certain type of information, we will we will use it. But 
we use third party data providers, we use public source information, we, you know, augment that with some NGO information. So, you know, we really do try to get, try our best to ferret out incorrect or misleading information that could be the result of greenwashing. But it takes significant effort and one really has to be committed to, um, to doing the hard work in order to get to the bottom of, uh, of an individual company's um, true uh, ESG profile. Yeah, definitely. And well, I mean, particularly from that answer, it seems that Radiant are truly making an effort to combat it. And uh, uh, obviously, it's, it's really valuable. And hopefully, uh, more firms and more asset management firms will, will take your lead, I suppose. But I want to move us on to uh, ESG now and more current topics and more topical themes, uh, some of which we discussed at the top of the episode. I mentioned sustainable funding flows were up 72% in Q2 this year. However, only 15% of those global inflows were made in the US, uh, with approximately 85% accounted for in Europe, I believe. So I was particularly interested to get your take on why that might be. Yeah, I think that this question has a lot of possible answers. um, But I think in the big picture, um, let me start by saying, and this is a, this is a, a generality to be sure, but that the U.S. has had historically very different expectations about the role of corporations within society. Um, in general terms, companies have not been integrated into society for the most part. Their, their responsibilities have been understood to be to their shareholders only and largely orthogonal to the rest of society. There is a belief, or there has historically been a belief in the US that that capitalism is not moral or immoral, um, but amoral. And that belief, I think, rings true for people, especially who are, um, you know, my age, well, (laughs) generously, late 40s, (laughs) and older, whereas I think the hopeful message is that we see younger generations of Americans as having some different expectations for the role of corporations, and in my mind, more appropriate expectations. So to the extent that many people's introduction to ESG was, you know, something like values-based investing that, you know, became part of the the popular lexicon, you know, 10 or 15 years ago. Um, Many Americans believe that values are to be expressed through um, charity, through volunteering, through personal endeavors, but we shouldn't expect companies to be the vehicles of value expression. So I think that that's, again, in general terms, why ESG has, uh, has had a harder time taking off historically. Currently, um, our, our government, the current administration um, that's in office right now, has really actively put ESG in the crosshairs as it relates to investing, um, both in this latest DOL ruling and in uh, you know, a missive that was issued by the SEC, the Trump administration rolling back big environmental laws, you know, green lighting, things like uh, pipelines. So on the one hand, you can argue this has had a cooling effect on ESG and actually kind of given a tailwind for, you know, companies that are big polluters. 
But on the other hand, I personally think that the current administration is actually responsible for the increased interest in ESG. We clearly can't rely on the government or this government to protect our air, our water, our access to medicine. And so what we've seen is that the private sector, including investors, have seem like they've taken matters into their own hands. And I think a very important milestone was when you know, when the U.S. government decided to pull out of the Paris Climate Agreement, um, U.S. corporations and large investors immediately stepped up with these full-page announcements in the New York Times and said that they were still committing to upholding our end of the bargain in the United States. So I think that there are these competing forces, but it is not a surprise to me that ESG has gotten more traction recently, um, even though it's had a harder time historically. Yeah, that's fascinating. It's particularly interesting that I guess it's almost a symptom of the cultural and societal sort of mindsets of, of kind of the, the US nation, uh, which is then exacerbated by the uh, the current government, as you, as you sort of eloquently described there. Um, I guess then to follow on from that, if I use those broad numbers again, 15% uh, inflows in the US versus 85% in Europe, do you see that, uh, that equation, those two numbers shifting at all? Yes, I do. I, I, I really believe strongly, and this is based on, again, these sort of bottom-up conversations that we're having with other asset managers, that we're having with even our, you know, our friends and family who are not professional investors, to be sure. We do believe that ESG will only be uh, more popular in the US uh, going forward. We need vehicles, we need better education, but what we have found is that as people become more educated, and also I think importantly in the US, as people associate ESG investing with upside opportunity, again, which at Radiant we feel very strongly that this points us um, to upside opportunity when paired with other important traditional financial information, that that is a storyline that's probably uh, more compelling to fund investors than a, you know, sort of top-down regulator-led um, risk-centric uh, orientation in terms, of, uh, in terms of why to adopt ESG practices. Yeah, definitely. And I, I guess one thing we can say is that um, there is an issue, perhaps, or maybe you'll disagree. I mean, to me, it seems there's an issue, perhaps, at the heart of how we actually define ESG across the industry. So regardless of whether you're in the US or, or Europe, do you think that uh, sort of central, uniform definition of ESG is lacking? What, what's your take on that? So this is a, uh, this is a, a really interesting thing to think about because I can, on the one hand, I can completely understand why this is frustrating, but really nowhere else in finance do we require perfect agreement on definitions. You know, if you ask two practitioners for their definition of value or quality, or even the concept of risk, you're going to get very different answers. So I'm not surprised at all by the fact that data providers, for example, you know, all of whom are using these very, you know, different concepts of materiality, get to a different answer, although they're pointed in largely the same direction and using 
um, frankly, a lot of the same underlying data. So I, I, I feel like the challenge is really in opacity. It's not easy to understand what underlines, what underlies those headline ESG scores. Um, so it's this combination of opacity and then, you know, people's observations about the low correlations between the scores of the different data vendors, I think that leads to um, mistrust. And my message would be is that we absolutely must consider ESG subject matter, no, no question about that. But we would all benefit by moving away from these summary scores and toward um, what we often refer to as KPI reporting or, or reporting that actually captures tangible outcomes and is expressed in a way that the individual investor can understand. You know, if a portfolio or a company has a score of 65 and a different company has a score of 68, what does that mean? That doesn't mean much to a typical investor, myself included. So what we really need to do is move toward a system where we say this particular company had, you know, five workplace accidents in their factories in Asia, but, but their competitors over here had 26. You know, what does that tell us about those two companies? That's tangible information that people can actually use to evaluate companies yeah so i guess it's it's ultimately sort of being less lazy is probably too strong a word but less dependent on the ratings providers like like you were talking about there and there's actually added sort of onus on businesses like yours to innovate and to um come up with more sort of granular specific metrics that are actually going to resonate uh with both uh, investment professionals and uh, sort of retail investors as well yeah, and I think that I think that the scoring systems were a necessary evolutionary step. You know, most investors, not just individuals, most professional investors who approached this subject matter, you know, 10 years ago would really not have a, a materiality map in mind when they thought about which ESG uh, criteria were important for which type of company. And so uh, we did rely on um, these experts at the various data providers, and and the, their materiality mappings are very well informed. I don't I don't mean to insinuate that they're not. They're just different when you move from one vendor to another. And frankly, the type of data in the ESG space is more and different than it was um, compared to the time that we started with those ratings. You know, now we have information that is um, revenue information. We have physical risk data. We have you know, uh, um, uh, things like uh, natural language processing that can help us analyze you know, text-based information. So the types of data have grown and the amount of data itself has grown. So now we're at a point where many of us are comfortable working in the detail and working with that nuance but you know years ago that was probably not the case yeah yeah that makes complete sense i guess then to finish this section on a opportunity sort of centric question um is there a particular theme or area of esg or sustainable investment that you think is on the tip of big things or you think that's particularly interesting i mean you you mentioned that a lot of clients are asking you about divestment at the moment maybe that's one but 
maybe you can give us a, another one or talk more on uh, divestment perhaps? Um, sure, sure. So uh, the, the one that is on my mind, and I think on the minds of, of many, although they might not describe it in this way, is this subject of biodiversity. And when we think about biodiversity within the context of COVID and all of the other zoonotic pandemics that really preceded COVID, these are great examples of the problems that we face as humans, as a society, and by extension as companies, when we do more and more encroachment into wild spaces. The PRI just released a good, you know, kind of summary report that makes an excellent point that historically, when it comes to biodiversity, we've only been focused on these high profile events, you know, so it's only when there's a pandemic that we start um, talking about it. But it is estimated that um, more than half of the world's gross domestic product is somehow dependent on natural capital. Um, and this unprecedented loss of biodiversity um, and natural capital puts extreme risk to companies, to supply chains, and then to us as individuals. So I think that this is something that you will hear people talking about more, really with the goal to connect the dots for people. How does deforestation, how does that hurt my portfolio returns if I'm investing in companies that are you know, involved in this practice? That's something that we need to connect the dots for the individual investor on. Yeah, yeah, I think that's really valuable and something actually our listeners can uh, can kind of track and look out for post this interview. Uh, so that's really been uh, worthwhile. Uh, and I guess I wanted to uh, end the interview with something that we always tend to do with uh, with all of our guests. Actually, is a, is a quick fire question round. So the idea is that you can answer these five questions in as little as one sentence or even one word, if you like. So first of all, can I ask you, what is the top mistake investors make, in your opinion? Uh, we, we, got it, we got into this a little bit, but this idea of being blinded by technology. Um, there are some companies out there with fascinating technology, but most of them will not be good investments. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah, interesting. Um, number two then, where do you go for investment or economic insights? You know, do you read a specific publisher, for example? I think, you know, I, I fall back on the ones that many others do, the Wall Street Journal, Financial Times, New York Times, but I would say The Economist for, for long-form articles is, is superb. Even, you know, even The New Yorker or Vanity Fair, you know, I tend to gravitate toward longer articles that go into more depth. But even having said that, I really find myself sort of slavishly tied to the Bloomberg News scroll. And so I actually have to turn that off when I'm trying to get work done because I'll see it out of the corner of my eye and can't help but click on it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I bet, I bet that's something that will resonate with our listeners too. Um, so question three, what is the most memorable moment from your career to date? I think it has to be being, being appointed to head up our Australia-New Zealand business. And for me, this was a very clear promotion um, and it also, of course, had a huge impact on my family and my personal life. So that was a really, a really big moment. Yeah, cool. Okay, so question four, a top tip for your younger self. I think I would tell my younger self to push hard to understand why. 
what is the what is the why behind what you're doing? You know, the focusing on the how and focusing on the the practicalities is one thing, and that's very good. But to understand why um, is the key to success in my mind. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Really solid advice. So the final question then. Uh, what gets you mentally ready as part of your morning routine? Is there anything you're doing when you first wake up or uh, sort of every day that gets you, uh, you know, gives you a good start to the day? I like coming into my office at home that is, that is set up for work, you know, so I have a dedicated office and the screens are on, the pencils are sharpened, you know, Bloomberg is up and running. Um, I've, I've heard and read a lot about, the artistic process um, that people like David Lynch or Isabella Allende talk about in terms of the importance of having your workspace ready to go so that when you're ready to work, it's there and ready for you. And I think that that's something that has helped me enormously. I know that, you know, with everybody um, or, or many people, I should say, uh, working from home these days, that's not always possible if you're in a a small apartment and having to make the dining room table your office. Um, but I would suggest to the extent possible, have your workspace ready for work at, at all times. Yeah, great. All right. We'll definitely agree with that. Um, well, you've been really generous with your time already, so we'll leave it there. Thank you very much for joining us on the podcast, Catherine. It's been a, been a real pleasure. Thank you, Hayden. It's been a real pleasure on my end too. Thanks for listening, everyone. Just a quick note before we sign off. If you're looking for an easily digestible daily update on the markets, this might be of interest to you. Opto Updates is our short newsletter sent every day during a trading week, giving you a bulleted list of the top seven stories from the global stock markets. We've done the hard work for you, highlighting relevant opportunities and trends. And in addition, we'll also keep you notified of any new podcasts, stock reports, or events from the Opto world. If you're interested, sign up using the link in the show notes. Until next time.